The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, the National Alliance of Blind Students is seeking new members and how one blind person recently served on a federal jury. Welcome to ACB Reports for April 2011. The National Alliance of Blind Students NABS is a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. During the affiliate president's meeting held near the end of February, NABS president Sarah Conrad and former president Rebecca Bridges talked about the need to recruit more student members into the American Council of the Blind. Thank you so much for allowing me to present today. I am a student at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I am studying biochemistry and pre-med. Um, hoping to be a pediatric oncologist. And I began participation with the American Council of Blind as a scholarship winner um, back in 2009. But it's just been such a blessing to be a part of this organization. And something that has um, really come up in discussions with NABS and that we've become so passionate about is the fact that there are not enough students involved in ACB. And it's troubling on many levels. First of all, students aren't getting a chance necessarily to interact with each other. Yeah, we have email lists and phone calls, but they're not necessarily coming to conventions and getting to meet each other or within their states um, getting connected. There's also a lack then of relationships between older members of ACB and the students, and that's just a huge disconnect then. There's a lack of continuity as well, because contrary to popular belief, we're not going to be in school forever, even though it feels like it when I'm sitting in class <laughs> and I'm pre-med, so I kind of will be in school forever. But without this continuity between NABs and state and special interest affiliates, there's a lack of sustainment within the ACB. So here is our proposal as NABs, that we work together, that we collaborate. Here we have an affiliate made up of all students, and then we have these state affiliates that can help connect them. How does this work? That's a really good question. I have no idea. And that is why I'm here. We have two kind of main questions that we want to look at. I'm going to give a few minutes for each question to discuss around your table and then just pick one spokesperson for your table. And um, at the end of the discussion, then we'll hear from a couple of people. How can NABs work with your affiliates to increase student membership? What would the roles of our affiliate be? What student roles would be? And what would be your affiliate's role in this? How would we collaborate? Just share your ideas. Provide students with scholarships and lots and lots of fabulous mentoring opportunities. We need to give them a path to move beyond NABs and into the broader organization. Identify and recruit students. That's kind of a given. If we don't recruit them, we can't get them in as members. Give them a reason to join. Everybody wants to know what's in it for them. Have NABs state affiliates affiliate with their state affiliates. The members of NABs also become the members of that state, which is a part of helping them have a path to move beyond NABs and into the general organization. This affiliation might include suspending the $5 ACB national membership fee that would be potentially paid twice on the part of people who are affiliating with 
NABs and with their state affiliate. The last idea is move forward. Students don't care what's going on 30, 40 years ago and how it all started. That's a lovely idea, but move forward. We're in the here and now, move forward. Not that we can't go back and do the history, but make that not the primary way that we engage them. And the last thing that cropped up, use social media, speak their language. We also talked about getting involved with colleges, working with the college's disability services to get our name out there and get to meet students. Scholarships, of course, we talked about also. Marsha brought up an idea that they do in Georgia. They have a telephone call every month that's open to any blind or visually impaired student in Georgia. And they have a mailing list, an email list uh, that they notify their students about this conference call. And they get someone from NABs or someone who has interest with students to participate in that call so that they can talk with students directly. In addition to just contacting the DSS offices, we thought besides um, just calling them and sending them brochures, we thought if you find out the head person's email address, that would make it easier for them to forward that email on to the different students. Also, uh, once you get names of students and you invite them to your group, keep them aware of what's happening, and then also invite them to participate on panels, either in your chapters or in your state affiliate uh, meetings. Would you see that as NAB's role or as the state affiliate's role or both in order to kind of Coordinating the two together. Um, if you have a NAB's group in your state, you could call them and ask them if they could help you get a panel together for the state affiliate. But if you don't have a NAB's group and just the chapters have uh, students, then you'd go through the students that were in the chapters. But I do agree that you know, it would be helpful if the states could help the NAB's to get affiliates in their states. We had a couple of thoughts. Um, George Holliday from Pennsylvania has said that in addition to giving scholarships, that he actually brings it, the students, takes them to lunch, and makes them honorary members for like a year, I guess. And I think that's a fabulous idea. But I had a thought about something that I certainly would like for NABs to do to help me because as membership chair for Washington, one of my goals is to try to establish a student group this year. And that is, yeah, I know where students are. I know going to disability services. I know that. I know social media. But how do I market as a person who's had more than 30 years' experience in this business, how do I market how interesting this all is to people who aren't even 30? So NABs, I really, and I think every affiliate, really needs your expertise more than you may perhaps know because you got to go to where the people are, and that's what we need help with is going to where they are. We have one more question to kind of discuss And that is, how do we get students to conferences and conventions? And um, what are ways that NABs and or your affiliates can help encourage students to get there? So not just being members of your state or special interest affiliate, but even getting them involved on a national level. We have a question in response to your question. Oh, boy. (laughs) We have reached out to our scholarship winners Uh, We've had follow-up mentoring calls and not received very much response, positive response from our our scholarship winners. So our question to you, what kept your interest? 
What was it about ACB your, your, or NABS or whatever? What is it that drew you to this organization? And maybe we can focus on that and use that to draw other students because we're just not having, having that kind of luck with our, our scholarship winners. For me, it's just been such a welcoming group. When I first came to convention, I just immediately found a place to belong. I don't know if other scholarship winners have found that um, or if that's maybe not what they're looking for, but I would think everyone wants a place to belong. So um, I think for me, I tend to have a pretty extroverted personality. So I automatically would start conversations with um, other adults and have established that place to belong in those relationships. So I know for me... What about you, Rebecca? Well, I think, to your point, Sarah, I think it takes a special kind of student to stay here. It takes somebody like Sarah. I mean, when I came to ACB, I got involved as a scholarship winner as well. And it's because I was interested, because at that time they weren't even requiring people to come to convention who got scholarships. And that's something I feel very strongly about, and I'm glad that that's moving in the right direction. But I think it takes a special kind of student, because ACB is great in that they're kind of like, well, come if you want. But you've got to want to come. It's not, look at all we've done for you, so you're indebted to us, and you'll always come back. You know, we're not the kind of organization that attracts followers because we're grassroots. And I think that it takes a special kind of person to want to stay here, to want to jump in, to want to get involved, to want to reach out and meet people. Some of my best friends are in ACB, and I knew that right away when I came here. But I took the initiative, and I think it's very difficult when students are having a lot done for them, you know, DSS offices are handling a lot of things, students have a lot of entitlements. And because ACB doesn't just hand people money, we don't throw money at people to come. You know, it's just kind of come if you want, come if you can. But I think it takes a special kind of student. And I don't know if that answers your question, but we need self-starters. And I don't know. I mean, that's my perspective. Rebecca, that was fabulous. This is Kim Charlson. The proverbial thing that came up at our table is certainly money is an issue, and all of us know students don't have a lot of money, so it is part of the equation, and it's a big part of the equation. But, you know, again, how do we get them to be more involved? I think all the things we talked about in the first round make a huge difference. But making ourselves relevant to them is really important. Marlena said it pretty well, I think, and everybody has said, we can't use the strategies that we used 25 years ago and have students of today believe that we're relevant to them. So we have to find the things and we have to engage them in things that are of interest to them. Peter Alchul at our table said that they have a student in Friends in Art who's extremely active because they've engaged him in the band, they've engaged him in the decision-making. So they've given him a really important role in their affiliate. I think he's going to be a future leader because of that. You have to do more than just hand money out. You have to find out what people are all about and really get to know the students and understand what makes them tick and try to work that into what you do in your affiliate. My name is Michael Mason. I am from of the state of Mississippi. I have a son that's 15 years old that two weeks ago found out that he has retinitis pigmentosa. So I can't speak of the college students, but with the younger people that are suffering with these diseases with their eyes, I think if you would get the information out to the parents, and what I did, I went to the district schools. 
I got the district officers to come to our meeting. I explained to them what we do and what we were trying to achieve. And because the finances are not there to get all the letters out in the mail and the stamps and things like that, we proposed that we would do a service project to assist some of the students. And in return, they would do the emails, send it out to schools. They would do some publications and things of that nature. And if you reach the parent, the parent is the individual that incurs the child. And I think if we can meet that agenda... Uh, we might have some achievements. Thank you. I don't know how many of you know that on our board we have advisors, and these individuals are seasoned veteran, tremendous ACB members who are also the type of self-starters and great advocates that I talked about. And I wanted to take a minute to recognize Artis and Brenda, who have so graciously offered to serve this year, and they have been tremendous in the areas of membership and fundraising. And so we want to thank them. And also, Mitch, thank you for giving NABS time on the program. It's a great opportunity for us. You know, we don't just want to come and say, we need this, we need this. We want to work with you. We hope to repay you by uh, bringing in more folks. So thank you. To learn more about the National Alliance of Blind Students, send an email to president.org acbstudents at gmail.com. That's president.acbstudents at gmail.com. Or contact the National Office of the American Council of the Blind. That contact information will be given at the end of ACB Reports. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. If you are a registered voter, or if you have a state-issued legal ID, you are subject to being summoned to serve on a federal court jury. Janine Stanley of Columbus, Ohio, recently received that summons. She says her participation on the jury was a positive experience. I received a packet of information in the mail, regular print. I have a scanner, so of course I scanned it all. In the information, they gave a website for the Southern District Court of Ohio, which is the federal court here in Columbus, and it covers 30 counties in central and eastern Ohio, so it's a pretty big um, distance that this covers. I went to their website, which was absolutely beautifully accessible. Um, All of the forms were up there that I needed to fill out. Everything, all of the information about becoming a juror was up there in completely accessible formats. It was the first step of a really nice process. How long then between the time you received the packet and your first day of jury duty? Well, it was about two months between the time that I received it and the time that I was initially supposed to report. Unfortunately, I was supposed to report in December, and with work commitments, I wasn't able to actually commit. You have to commit an entire month to being able to be there five days a week. And I wasn't able to do that until March. The minute March came, I said, you know, I have no work commitments. I'm not going out of town, so here I am. You have to check in with the court every Saturday. You can do this online or you can do it by phone. And either way, it's very easy. You're assigned a nine-digit juror number, and you use that number to log into the website or to use on the telephone, and it will give you the instructions of whether you need to report or not. Between the time you received the packet and the time you uh, received your assignment, you did some other homework. Tell us about that. 
actually my husband did this because he was very worried about transportation, even though um, the federal courthouse is on the bus line. It's a couple blocks away from the bus, and there was a lot of construction between the bus line and the courthouse, and it was just a mess. So I was going to take paratransit, and that was going to get kind of messy. So we called the juror, the court officer. Uh, Her name is Fran Green, very wonderful lady. We called her and said, could you give us some time frames as to when I need to be there and when we'll be letting out every day so I can plan paratransit trips? And that got the ball rolling on, oh, my, a blind juror. And it wasn't a negative attitude at all. It was, this is great. What can we do to help you be part of the jury process? So you never once encountered the, oh, just stay home and don't worry about it, we'll get you out of it. (laughs) Nope. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was, how can we make this process work for you? Were you the first blind juror, or do you know? She said I was the first one that she had worked with, and the particular judge that uh, tried our case, I was the first blind person that he had worked with, and the first time that a guide dog was in the courtroom. So everybody, I think, was quite interested in seeing if this could work. You then were seated on the jury and participated. What can you tell us about that? Well, it was a very interesting case. It was an eight-person jury. It was a civil case. And during the jury selection process beforehand, part of my discussion with Fran Green was about how I would be able to review exhibits. The exhibits that you get are usually documents. They give them to the jury. Whenever the jury goes in for deliberation, they come in these two big print books. I said to them, well, you know, I have a computer. It's got a speech synthesizer. I happen to have Adobe Acrobat Pro. It can scan PDF documents that come in as graphic images, and it will scan them into readable PDFs, and you can save them. And I talked with the IT department to make sure that we were all on the same page as far as what documents I'd be getting, and if I couldn't scan and convert them, could they do it? And yes, they could. They were very excited and happy to hear about how to do that. The one thing I would do differently now, they did allow the jurors to take notes during the trial, and I wish I had brought my Braille note taker in to take notes with. I didn't even think of it. The notes are only for each individual to review. You can't share them with anybody. But the whole process, the attorneys, whenever they were giving exhibits and putting things up on the view screen, would read them, and they would say, for the benefit of the jury, let's read this exhibit aloud. They would make the people who were testifying actually read parts of the exhibit, or they would read it aloud so that everybody knew exactly where they were. And by the end of the case, believe me, we knew some of those exhibits by number, by heart. I was able to get the jury instructions. The judge gives a printed set of instructions to the jury, and I was able to get those in a Microsoft Word format. So I took my laptop back into the jury room and was able to review those along with the rest of the jurors, and it worked out quite well. We deliberated for about a day and a half on the case and uh, found for the plaintiff. Afterward, you have an opportunity, if you want, for the lawyers on both sides to come and talk with you. If you choose not to do that, then the federal court will order the lawyers not to talk to you. But if you choose, and and most of us did, to talk to the lawyers, you can. The defendant's lawyers didn't show up, of course, because they lost. I think they were ready to leave. But uh, the plaintiff's lawyers came in and uh, were very interested to see how they did. They are from a firm here in Columbus that tries a lot of ADA cases. And we're very excited about hearing about the convention coming in 2013 to Columbus. 
you were able then to bring the laptop into the court in order to read the PDF files. Did they do anything towards securing your laptop to make sure you weren't um, slipping messages to the media or whatever? <laughs> no, actually, they, they trusted us all pretty much because I think everybody in there had a cell phone that they could send messages and things with. We were told that if it was found that we were putting on Facebook or tweeting or anything like that about the case that we would be thrown off and we would be in contempt of court and many bad, bad things could happen. They gave me the documents on a CD and I did not copy them onto my computer. I just kept them on the CD. Then I gave the CD back to them at night and they locked it up with the exhibit books and everything. And then I got it the next day when I came back in. But um, they trusted us to do the right thing. During the deliberation itself, how would you describe the interaction between you and the other jurors? It was very spirited. Part of the reason that I was chosen for this case was that I had experience with contracts, and it was a civil case involving contract law. So several of us there had a bit of experience with business contracts and various types of contracts. So my fellow jurors were fantastic, though. I think we all got along very, very well. I was definitely an equal in the whole process. I was probably one of the three people that had the most experience with contracts, and we were sort of the holdouts and made them prove to us their points. So, uh, you know, I think they were probably happy to see me go, but we all got along very, very well and um, were very interested in the case and had some really good discussions out of it. And I think everybody really learned a lot about blindness, about etiquette around a guide dog, and uh, it was just a really, really positive experience. Apparently your presence made the trial itself a bit more verbal. Did you receive any feedback in terms of that from uh, the other jurors or from the court itself? Actually, from both, in terms of explaining a spreadsheet, now I deal with spreadsheets every day, you know, not with some of the financial things, more with record keeping, but some of the people didn't quite understand the spreadsheet layout. And as they explained it verbally, it became more clear to some of the other jurors, you know, I had a pretty good picture of it in my mind as to what it looked like, but they were doing that primarily for my benefit, but uh, they did a very good job of it. And the other jurors said that really helped them understand what they were seeing up on the screen. And also there were times when the print on the screen, because they were showing scanned images in some cases of emails and, and they weren't particularly good scans, so actually reading them made them a lot easier to actually see up on the screen and interpret up on the screen. So yeah, I did get that feedback. Now you live in Columbus, so transportation for you was pretty easy. If you had been at the far corner of the district, what would have happened? Uh, they would have had me come in. They would have paid for transportation to get me there. They put people up overnight. They put you up in a local hotel. They will get you a taxi cab back and forth. In my case, um, since we never knew when we would be finished each night, we had a set time, but we never knew if we would go over. So it was hard to schedule paratransit. So they actually paid for a uh, taxi to take me home each night and they covered the cost of that because it turned out to be about the same as mileage for somebody driving home. And so that worked out quite well. And I was a little hesitant to ask, but my husband said, oh, let's go ahead and ask and see what they say. So it does pay to ask in these situations and see if those accommodations can be made. When you were first notified that uh, your name had been chosen to be on a jury and there was the screening process, what can you tell us about that? Well, the form that you fill out online is a pretty extensive questionnaire. They ask um, a lot of questions about your associations. Do you or any immediate family members, for example, have anyone 
uh, serving in the military in your immediate family? Do you know any law enforcement personnel? Are you related to law enforcement personnel, etc.? And those questions come up during the jury selection process. The attorneys use that form to take a look at you during the jury selection. There are also some questions on there. Is there anything that would preclude you from serving on a jury? Do you have any impairments? Do you have any difficulty hearing or seeing? And they're two different questions. So they don't automatically assume that having a disability would preclude you from serving on a jury. And if you answer yes, in your case, to the seeing question, does that open up another realm of uh, subsequent questions? Not really. There was just a little uh, place where you could explain how this would affect you in terms of the jury process. And that's where I put the only way that it would affect me would be a need for electronic files and um, some basic assistance with orientation to the courtroom and things like that. Were there any issues related to your dog guide? Each day for the trial, we got an hour break for lunch, and they tell you, and as part of your jury instruction, that you're not to talk to the attorneys for either side or anything like that. And there are cameras all over most federal court buildings, so you are just about never off camera. (laughs) But you could also go out and walk around the downtown if you wanted, and there was a place at the federal courthouse where I could take my dog out during deliberations because we were not allowed to leave the jury room. They brought our meals in for us, but to take the dog out, the court officer and I went out, and she was always there with me when I was out with the dog, and then we came back in and went back up to the jury room. So every effort was made. I think he would have liked a dog bed up in the jury box, but (laughs) other than that... What would you tell the next blind person who happens to be chosen for any jury? I would say don't avoid it. I know a lot of people don't like jury duty, but it is a great opportunity to educate people on what blind people can do. Know your technology. If you have technology, if you've got even a Braille note taker, that can be very helpful. And don't be afraid to talk to the court about ways that they can accommodate you. They have IT departments. They can convert documents into whatever format you might need. It makes your life a lot easier. If you're not technological, they'll have somebody help read it to you. I've also served on a county jury. Well, I had jury duty. I never actually got chosen for a jury, but I spent two weeks every day at the county courthouse, and that one actually worked out really well, too. So I would say do it. It's one of your job duties as a citizen of the United States to be available as a jury of your peers. So go for it. The last time you and I talked on ACB Reports, we talked about the newly established ACB page on Twitter. How's that going? And remind people of how to sign up for tweets. It is going fabulously. We tweeted the mid-year meeting. We're up to about... Uh, almost 150 followers on Twitter, which is really quite good. To find us, you would go to twitter.com slash acbnational, and that will get you to our page, and you can follow us from there. Janine Stanley of Columbus, Ohio, is also a member of the ACB Board of Publications. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. 
Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.